Good day to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Uh, No matter where you are in the world, it's good to have you all um, on the air. Now, many of you all who have been um, loyal to my um, podcasts have been wondering um, where I've been for the last four days. Well, I can tell you this much. um, Like everyone else, I'm busy. But most of all, I've been on assignment. Now, I know I said that the last time, but I like to use that phrase. Think about it. When you're on assignment, that can mean a variety of things. But in this case, I've been um, working extra hard at getting ready to prepare for uh, this uh, podcast session. Well, of course, we are still on Founding Martyr, the life and death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's lost hero. But we are nearing the end of this uh, book that is a fabulous book written by Christian de Spigna. And after having um, skimmed through the uh, chapters and reevaluating what I've been talking about in each of the podcast sessions, I feel as though I've reconnected. Not that I didn't connect in any way the first go around when I read the book last year, but I feel like I've really made even more strides in um, reconnecting with Joseph Warren and being able to share it with you all, my listeners, because it is fair to say that um, Joseph Warren had been forgotten by authors and historians for a number of years, but it is fair to say that perhaps in the last 20 years that he has really um, reemerged. And I will probably talk more about that in the next podcast session, but I think it is great to know that um, that Joseph Warren has reemerged on the national scene in terms of a revolutionary um, war figure, although you know his life was cut short but the but the fact of the matter is that um, he still had a vital role in laying the um, architectural blueprint or foundation for how we were able to go about winning our um, independence from England, not just by means of an actual document like the Declaration of Independence, but how we were able to do so going um, head to toe on the battlefield with the mightiest empire in the world. We probably lost more battles than we won, but when we won the battles we weren't supposed to win, that's basically how the flames of liberty and freedom were kept alive along with good leadership. But you know, tonight's podcast is going to be one that's going to be talking about uh, transition. But it's also going to focus on um, how the delegates and other leaders learn about Warren's death, or should I say Joseph Warren's death. So, to start off uh, tonight's podcast... I think it's fair to say that the lead-off bonus question ought to be the following... Prior to accepting command of the Continental Army in Philadelphia on June 15, 1775, being two days before the infamous Battle of Bunker Hill took place, how many years had it been since General George Washington was last involved in a military conflict? Now, I can tell you this much. He he had not been general all of his life. He was a colonel, most notably from the French and Indian War, But to tell you the truth, it had been nearly uh, 20 years since George Washington last um, saw any kind of um, 
major military involvement. And again, that took place during the time of the French and Indian War. And uh, George Washington had a lot of um, interesting experiences during his time in the, American, in the French and Indian War. Most notably, one of them was at the Battle of, um, of uh, at Monongahela in Pennsylvania, where a military leader on the British side named uh, Edward Braddock uh, was leading a group of British men into the wilderness, and they were um, overwhelmed by French and Indian forces that pretty much slaughtered the British. Only those who survived were led to safety by none other than George Washington. Well, that is a great sign for um, what we would like to think is a uh, true um, hope for any kind of a military promotion or uh, we call it military um, recognition, but long story short, George Washington actually did not get the recognition he deserved. So his military days pretty much come to an end by 1758. So basically he is not in service for the, for the remaining duration of that war, which ends in 1763. And I think it's fair to say because of how um, the British perhaps had treated him in terms of not recognizing his uh, contributions in the aftermath of the slaughter in uh, Monongahela. So, uh, did Washington himself feel uncomfortable at first about accepting the role of general? Yes, he did. He had openly admitted to a handful of delegates in Philadelphia that his past military experiences did not make him well qualified for commanding for commanding the Continental Army, but nonetheless he was willing to accept. I think it's, it was very wise on Washington's part to accept. One reason I can say is the following. Well, first off, George Washington is from Virginia. As I have mentioned from various other podcasts, Virginia, at this time, leading up to... Um, well, not so much leading up to war with England, but in the years prior to the American Revolution, where all 13 colonies declared their separation from England, Virginia was the largest of the 13 colonies. And if any of the other colonies wanted to do anything else, especially in this case, here we are in 1775 in terms of wanting to separate from England, they're going to have to go through Virginia. How so? Well, Virginia being the largest not only has a lot to gain, but also a lot to lose. So I think it's very smart that George Washington is commander of the Continental Army in large part because he is representing the largest of the 13 colonies. He's very familiar not just with uh, Virginia, but his um, military um, record, even though in his eyes it's not the best, but it's probably better than going with someone else who would not have had much experience or would not be someone who would be the type to make wise decisions in terms of uh, proper fundamental leadership. But I think it's fair to say that um, had Washington not accepted the head commander position, I think history would have turned out very different for, for a host of reasons. 
Uh, namely, one of them could be that if Washington did not accept the role of commanding uh, head commander of the Continental Army, uh, for one, there might not be a Continental Army as we know. Two, um, whoever would have taken charge probably uh, would not have uh, been the most effective leader. And three, who's to say that uh, that the war itself would have lasted as long as it did to where in the end we emerged victorious. So there there would be a lot of what-ifs that would have remained unanswered to this day had George Washington not accepted. Well, for those of you who are wondering right now, why are we talking more about George Washington than we are about Dr. Joseph Warren? Well, I'm going to answer that question for you here in a moment. It's kind of interesting to think to yourselves, to yourselves that, hey, here a slew of delegates are meeting in Philadelphia and all of a sudden it's just going to be a matter of a few short days before a battle breaks out in Massachusetts that's going to uh, change um, the way um, not just the people of Massachusetts view their relations with England but perhaps um, members from other colonies who are not 100% sure what the best course of direction there is to take. But warfare is actually coming, and it's going to be on a different scale. And, of course, I mentioned it, uh, I talked about it, obviously, from the past podcast about um, the uh, Bunker Hill battle and how many assaults there were. But we must keep in mind that the delegates meeting in Philadelphia do not know what's coming next. They know that there is nothing but constant tension in Massachusetts, but they just don't know what's going to lie next. So on June 23rd of 1775, this is the day that George Washington will actually depart from Philadelphia to Boston. Now, for those of you who would, um, would know this by now, there are no highways so it's going to take George Washington probably at least maybe a good three to five days to get to Boston from Philadelphia. And remember, in his day, if he's traveling by uh, carriage, he's probably only going to get at best about, if he could make it from point A to point B in one day for 30 miles, then he's accomplished a lot. But we have to remember, too, most people can only get from point A to point B in a day's time, maybe in 10 miles at best depending on what their destination is like. So it turns out that in uh, Boston, or not Boston, but the news about the Bunker Hill battle has still not um, arrived to Philadelphia. So Washington is leaving from Philadelphia to Boston with no idea that a battle itself has taken place along with Joseph Warren's passing. Remember, folks, that's how different the news was back then. We didn't have breaking news reports like we get on television. Of course, there's no television back then. So it's going to take at least a good week before um, anyone from Philadelphia knows what has happened. Did any delegates in Philadelphia, a bonus question here, did any delegates in Philadelphia write letters to Joseph Warren regarding Washington's role of Continental Army Commander? The answer is yes, and it would be none other than Massachusetts delegates John Hancock and Samuel Adams. 
But the time in which these letters, in which the letters themselves had arrived into Massachusetts, sadly, Joseph Warren was already dead. Now, what I think is uh, worth pointing out is that Samuel Adams and John Hancock each wrote uh, an individual letter. And for uh, John Hancock, his letter had to do with, uh, per, with arrangements and uh, transitioning of power. In other words, John Hancock's letter specifically instructed Joseph Warren on how he was to uh, formally introduce George Washington to those uh, fellow soldiers who were currently under Warren's command, but he was also um, instructed to ensure that basically the transition was a smooth one. There's nothing worse than having a bad transition, regardless of the circumstances, but here you are in the midst of a national crisis. The last thing you don't want is a bad transition, because if you do have one, then how are you going to expect how you, how are you going to expect there to be a true functioning continental army? If you don't have respect from leadership above, then how can you get respect from those who are serving you from below? And interesting enough, Samuel Adams's letter who, that he wrote to George, Joseph Warren had to do with uh, transitioning of power that affected the second in command. And the person who was in, uh, second in command at this time was uh, Artemis Ward. So I think it's fair to say that um, if Joseph Warren had lived, it would have been the, most, the more appropriate thing to have formally introduced George Washington and transferred the power of command directly to Washington than have Artemis Ward do it. Um, think about it. Joseph Warren was the ex-de facto leader He's the one that uh, pretty much oversaw all the economic, political, and social, or even the military affairs. So the bottom line is, if you've got someone who's overseeing all of this, then give, make sure that that person is the one who, who can effectively um, hand over the reins to the next person in line, especially George Washington. And of course, we must remember, too, that Joseph Warren and George Washington had never met I do believe had uh, Joseph Warren been alive and officially had met Washington, that the two of them would have um, that the, the two of them would have hit things off well. Now, a week after June seventeenth of seventeen seventy five, being June the twenty fourth, which is a Saturday, or let alone I should say a Sunday, I take it back a Sunday. Around midnight of June 24, 1775, an express rider arrives into Philadelphia with the news regarding the Bunker Hill battle outcome to Joseph Warren's official death. You know, it's one thing to bring news to people, but I have to be reminded of myself, too, that just because you bring the news, it doesn't always mean it's good news. It could be both. But the bottom line is, is that whatever news you bring to people, they will listen, they will want to know about it, and it will impact them um, short and long term. So when this express rider arrives into Philadelphia and around midnight, it's fair to say that um, all the delegates are 
have adjourned, have already well adjourned for the day and, and have um, returned to their chambers, meaning their bedrooms, uh, for the evening? And the answer is true. Now, I should point out that given that June 24th of 1775 was a Sunday, no congressional sessions w- would be conducted, given that Sundays were reserved for Sabbath services. In other words, you didn't work on Sunday. You went to church, but you, um, how, do you how do I say it? You took care of whatever was needed, but you didn't work yourself to death. When this express rider arrives into Philadelphia, he addresses as many of the delegates as he can. They, many of them awake from their beds to learn the news from the rider himself about Warren's death. And is it fair to say that a lot of, if it's fair to say that all these men, even those who were skeptical about even wanting to declare their independence from England, is it fair to say that all these men are left in disbelief? Yes. And despite the fact that Warren himself never attended either Continental Congress gathering, was he well known to all the, to many of the delegates? Yes. How so? Because all the delegates came together as one in adopting those, those famous Suffolk resolves nine months earlier, back in uh, September of 1774. Remember, folks, the Suffolk resolves had to do with a variety of uh, issues, most notably uh, the, the delegates at the First Continental Congress coming together on the non-importation agreements which pretty much uh, prohibited um, the importation of British goods coming into uh, the colonies. And that was the first big step towards everyone coming together. In the aftermath of the news received about Bunker Hill battle, did a majority of delegates finally realize the ramifications before them? Uh, The answer is yes. Many of them realized that independence itself would have to involve going to war. In other words, their personal freedoms weren't going to be handed over. Bigger sacrifices like war itself would become inevitable. And yes, I can't imagine being one of those delegates and learning about just how many um, British soldiers were killed or wounded, and the same even for the Americans. Sure, we may not have sustained... 1,054 uh, losses or, or losses or, or what do you call it um, wounded soldiers but we lost we had about 450 men uh, killed or wounded and, and a small handful of uh, prisoners of war that is a lot right there but regardless of the number when you find that out that's a life altering um, situation right there you know right away that hey we could be in for a long road, but if we're going to do something about it, we've got to come together as one. So, yes, while well, I think it's fair to say that the delegates outside of Massachusetts from other colonies had not met Joseph Warren, but when Paul Revere had brought the Suffolk resolves to the delegates, I and they all agreed on those Suffolk resolves, most notably the non-importation agreements, I think it's fair to say that they all felt some connection to Joseph Warren. 
Was Dr. Warren's death a, quest, a, a huge blow to the Patriot slash Whig faction? Yes. Warren's presence as a leader helped define the leadership movement itself on all levels, and without him at the helm, it'd be very hard to say or determine who would have been second in command. In other words, who would have been that second person that could have um, been the equivalent to a Joseph Warren? And as tragic as Warren's death was, his political associates, which I strongly commend them for having done this, they carried the fight to keep the flames of liberty itself alive. Associates being men like Sam Adams, to his cousin John Adams, John Hancock, Paul Revere. Warren himself had sacrificed a great deal personally and financially to, to the Whig agenda, but his leadership enabled other Massachusetts leaders, like the men's like the, some of the men's names mentioned a moment ago, his leadership enabled some of these men to attend the Continental Congress meetings in Philadelphia, especially for John Hancock and Samuel and John Adams. But Warren's leadership alone helped save the lives, helped save the lives of those who carried on the course for freedom. So while, yes, it was, it's very sad that Joseph Warren died, and yes, the, the Patriot leadership had sustained a huge blow. But what do you think the worst thing that the delegates in Philadelphia could have done? Yes, they could have, for one, they would have had every right to have grieved and mourned this man's loss. But what if they all packed up their bags and said, hey, it's not safe for us anymore to be here. So we're going to go back to our home, to our native colonies, and we're just going to have to meet at another time. That would be ultimate betrayal right there. That would be ultimate, the ultimate surrender. The, the delegates then would have given England what they would have wanted. And that was complete surrender and a return to tyranny. Harsh rule without any way of acknowledging or receiving consent without being allowed to have a say in matters that were either acceptable or unacceptable. So, yes, it is sad when a leader like Joseph Warren dies, but those who are um, also in the same boat who have survived must do whatever it takes to keep on, to keep the legacy of one man's spirit alive but also keep the flames alive, not just for the present, but for the future. Now, was the manner in which Joseph Warren's body... Uh, let me repeat this. Was the manner in which Joseph's, Joseph Warren's body got treated a direct violation of British warfare? Or should I say the British violation for British warfare rules of engagement? Uh, the answer is yes. And remember from the previous night's podcast, Joseph Warren, after he was shot, he was shot just below his left eye. But after he was shot, British soldiers 
went to violent extremes in terms of um, butchering his body with bayonets. They basically saw his body as a trophy. Even General William Howe said that capturing Joseph Warren was like the equivalent of 500 of the bravest patriots sacrificing their own lives. But yes, how Joseph Warren's body was treated was in fact a direct uh, violation for British warfare rules of engagement, but to the eyes of high-ranking British men, this protocol itself wasn't on their minds, given that Warren himself was public enemy number one. By killing Warren on the Bunker Hill battlefield, they believed that the fight for freedom would become extinguished. But how wrong was that? How did top-level British leaders who knew Warren uh, directly perceive him right up till his death? Well, besides seeing Joseph Warren as the most dangerous threat to royal authority, men like Thomas Hutchinson were convinced that Warren would have reached the summit of all political and military affairs, whereas former Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court being Peter Oliver was convinced that had Warren lived, George Washington himself would have never earned the title that we know as head commander of Continental Army. There again, that's another um, scenario of the what-ifs right there. It is possible that, um, yes, had Joseph Warren lived, he probably would have had some um, significant leadership within the Continental Army. And yes, it might be possible to say that George Washington himself would have um, still had some form of leadership Yes, history may not always work out the way we would like to, and yes, this is a very tragic circumstance where Joseph Warren lost his life. But I do believe that Joseph Warren was probably looking down on George Washington and praising him and knowing that, hey, there is another person out there who can lead this fight in the same way that I have. I've started it. But who is it going to be left up to to finish it? What's well, a good answer right there? I would say George Washington. He is the right, the right choice to finish the job. Well, despite Warren's death at Bunker Hill, did that battle alone help break existing allegiances to the crown? Yes. George III had declared the colonists to be in an open state of rebellion, one that was hostile, which included opposing all existing laws on the books, to deliberately waging war in a non-European conformed style. What does that necessarily mean? Well, the American Revolution had many battles that involved guerrilla-style warfare, where our light, where men from a light infantry unit would come out into a field or into the woods and harass the main line of the British army or British um, units. And while losses might have been small, the strategies would have been to um, 
keep the British on the run and keep them away from their headquarters or their primary headquarter location to where um, they would be so far removed from their primary encampments to where the further they left and moved into unknown territory, the greater the the game of cat and mouse would become to where it would benefit us, but um, but impact, um, but serve as a disadvantage to them. So in other words, keep them on the run, keep them off guard, and do whatever it takes to inflict losses. They don't have to be grand, but, the, but even smaller losses. So basically, when you inflict smaller losses, it's still hard for the opposition to regroup, it's also hard for them to remobilize to where they can bring more men at a moment's notice for reinforcement. Now, who was the first in the Warren family to receive news about Joseph's missing or his disappearance? The answer is his youngest brother, John, who happened to be Joseph's medical protege. Once the family came to the realization that that he had passed on it was it was how he died that led to outrage and disgust so think about this too folks you know there was no um there was no what he called ten thousand dollar reward for um leading to a, um the whereabouts of a missing person back then like you have in, in today's time now in the warren what I found uh, interesting is that the Warren home in Roxbury, or let alone the farm, was used to feed and house Patriot soldiers, but it also included ser- but it also included serving as a haven to deserters whom had fled the British Army. The Warren family farm sadly was stripped of all of its value during the period from April to June of seventeen seventy five You know, what I think is very sad is back in these times, as tragic as it was for a couple to lose a child, I think what's even worse is for children to lose their parents in a short period of time. Sadly, Joseph Warren's children lost both of their parents between 1773 and 1775. His practice was dismantled. But ironically, on May 8th of 1775, his final entry was noted in his medical ledger. So you think about it. I mean, so many people have left Boston for safety reasons. And so many of these men have left to fight in what would become Bunker Hill. So who's left in charge of Boston? Well, the British. They have control. And remember from the previous night's podcast that... It, that the only way to leave Boston peacefully was to surrender your arms. What happened to Joseph uh, Warren's um, fiance, or not? Well, some people would say fiance, but companion, Mercy Scolay. Well, for starters, she and Joseph Warren never married. But this is a trying time after Joseph Warren is dead. It's a very trying time for the family and for friends. And Mercy herself is impacted by this. But Mercy Scolay never got the respect nor benefits due to her being a widow. 
Yes, she was not legally married to Joseph, but you might as well say that she was technically in some ways like a widow. She had been with Joseph Warren for some time. But of course, in the 18th century days, when it came to custody of a child or children, there was a lot of complexity in the legal uh, system in those days. It was that a bad thing? No, but it was, it was just what it was. But it turns out that for a period of time that, um, that all four of these children did go back to uh, the Warren family. Now, uh, in March, of, March 17th of 1776, does anybody know what's significant about that date? Well, for starters, it marks the nine-month anniversary of the Bunker Hill Battle. But ironically, nine months to that exact day, the British officially evacuate Boston. What a sign of relief this is for the um, people of Boston. Now, I will say this, though. Coming back is not the same. Boston's going to have to be rebuilt. A lot of businesses were closed. Um, a lot of things were not the same because the British had occupied. But the British are finally leaving, and now they're going south to New York. Of course, that will be a whole other story there. But that New York campaign, will if people think Boston was bad, New York will be a lot worse. But prior to March of 1776, Patriot access into Charlestown, where the Battle of Bunker Hill took place, had been heavily restricted. But after the British departure, George Washington had allowed John Warren, Joseph's brother, to enter Charlestown, where the Bunker Hill Battle itself had been fought. On April 4th of 1776... Two of Warren's brothers, including some of his closest friends, made their way into, the, into Charlestown to discover his body, which had been buried less than three feet underground on Breed's Hill. Now, I can't imagine stumbling upon a dead person's body that's buried less than three feet underground, regardless of setting. How do you think this body looked like even after nine months? The body was badly decomposed, but believe it or not, his brothers successfully identified him. And how so? Remember, folks, there's no such thing as forensic testing or let alone DNA testing. But, but with sheer luck, uh, his brothers were able to identify him by the two artificial teeth which had been fastened in with gold wire. I can tell you right now who actually did all that work on Joseph Warren's teeth was Paul Revere. And of course, we all now are asking ourselves this. Well, wasn't he a silversmith? Yes. But he was also known, he also was a dentist. He had performed dentistry work and was responsible for inserting both false teeth into Warren's mouth. Well, you know, you don't have to go to dental school at this time to become a dentist. You probably would just 
be apprenticed, but hey, if, you, if you're uh, successful in other trades and it involves your hands, and if you're that good with being able to put um, false teeth into someone's mouth, shoot, then you can be a dentist on the spot. Now, as great as this may seem that Warren's brothers have been able to identify their brother by his two artificial teeth, is it safe to say that both of his brothers are horrified? Yes, but they are horrified by how badly his body looked. And it was so bad that they had to leave, on, they, that they left immediately. Well, this is the first time they've, that they have seen him dead. Remember, folks, Joseph Warren didn't get a proper burial. He was butchered to death by the British. And then only to be buried three feet, less than three feet um, underground. That's just not right. But I also know that it had to take the British about, it took the British about three days to remove all the dead bodies because they were going to set up encampment. And so therefore, when you remove bodies in a short time, you've got to bury them quickly. Not everybody's going to get a proper burial. But there is good news to report in that Warren's remains were brought to the State House in April of 1776, where they would lie in state for several days. It may be fair to say that Joseph Warren's funeral may have been the first funeral that we know of where a head leader would lie in state in this country. The procession itself took place with several hundred mourners as well as a unit of continental soldiers whom led the way to the king's chapel. The funeral itself included people from all ranks of Boston society. I think that should be pointed out. It wasn't just confined to one sector. But I think it's fair to say that because Joseph Warren as a doctor catered to patients from all walks of life, or let alone people from all walks of life. His medical practice wasn't catered to just the Whigs, the prominent Whigs and Loyalists. He catered to everybody. Now, Joseph Warren would be buried at the old granary burial ground, and his grave was marked without a name behind the shadows of the Minot family tomb. Well, this and on one hand, this could come as a surprise that his uh, grave was mar wasn't marked without his name, but there is probably a good reason why this is the case. The family had endured a lot. They had endured a lot knowing that their brother did not die peacefully, that he had died. Um, he, basically, you could say that he was murdered to death even after he had already been officially declared dead. But had his name been placed 
on a gravestone. This could have given Warren, this probably could have helped give Warren and his family a sense of peace. No fears or worries about any individuals, or let alone, I should say, loyalists, engaging in further acts of grave desecration. Sometimes the, the dead need to be um, buried without a name. Maybe that's their way, only way of being able to rest in peace without any kind of um, further, um, what do you call it, further harm, to prevent any kind of further harm. Was Mercy Scolay's life after Joseph's death very different? Yes, it was. When Joseph Warren himself passed on, Mercy herself had lost custody of the children based on legal documentation that couldn't prove Mercy herself to be official legal guardian. But over time, though, she would be reunited with the children, whom still showed genuine affection towards her, and the rest of the Warren family became close to Mercy as well. I think that's a very nice, um, fitting way for the families, for this family to have reconciled their differences with Mercy. But, you know, when Joseph died, we have to remember, too, that he didn't leave any actual will stating where his children would have gone if in the event he had died. You know, Yes, he knew the risks that were being taken. But I think he had every reason to believe he would have come home alive that day on June 17th of 1775. But we know now that um, that was not meant to be. But here's something interesting that's worth pointing out. Beginning around 1778... Patriot leader Benedict Arnold, whom had developed a very strong relationship with Joseph Warren three years earlier when the capture of Fort Ticonderoga in New York took place, in part because of Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen's leadership, Benedict Arnold began sending money to Mercy Scolay to help with expenses towards raising the children. Now that, to me, is a very nice gesture Arnold himself can relate to Mercy Scolay because he himself, and I didn't know this, I knew Benedict Arnold was married to Peggy Shippen. That would be his second wife, but Benedict Arnold himself lost his first wife. And how ironic, and this is sad, but he lost his first wife days after Joseph Warren died at Bunker Hill. Like Mercy Scolay, Arnold himself had lost a significant other. And the, the payments to Mercy Scolay from Benedict Arnold himself continued into 1780 when he had already become a secret agent for the British. And of course here Mercy Scolay has no idea that Benedict Arnold has become a traitor. So that's a real slap in the back on uh, Benedict Arnold's part. One could even say that could he have been using Mercy Scolay for his own personal um, gains 
that's possible. What I find even more interesting is that um, by the time Benedict Arnold has become a secret agent for the British, Mercy Scolet had received nearly 3,000 pounds for children's boarding, education, and clothing. Despite the fact that um, Mercy Scolet... I will say this. When Mercy Scolet and her family found out about what Benedict Arnold had done, were they very angry? Sure. They felt that they had been stabbed in the back by him the whole time. But Mercy Scolet, believe it or not, never married. And she never bore any children of her own. But for the rest of her life, she always viewed Joseph Warren's children as her own. It was in 1826 that Mercy Scolet herself died. She lived to be in her early to mid-80s. She is buried in Medfield. Joseph Warren is buried elsewhere. But even to this day, Joseph Warren and Mercy Scolet remain separated in life and death. You know what's interesting about 1826 as well? Two of our most prominent uh, forefathers died on July 4th of that day. The 50th anniversary of what would be our Declaration of Independence. Those men's names were Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Thomas Jefferson died on the morning of that day, and I think his last words were known to be the following. Is today the 4th. John Adams died later that day, and his last words were known to be the following. Thomas Jefferson survives. Thomas Jefferson lived to be 83. John Adams lived to be 90. He wasn't that far away from turning 91. The men um, whom we lost from the Revolutionary War era, in my opinion, you know, nobody can live forever, but the men who died serving their country and sacrificing so many freedoms that we have today that, yes, at times we take for granted, those men must not be forgotten. I'm very glad that Joseph Warren has not been forgotten, although it has taken a long time for historians to come to the realization that there was an earlier version of George Washington out there, not just so much the George Washington that we have come to know and revere for so long, but a man named Joseph Warren was setting the early foundations for men like George Washington who could um, lead an, a continental army into open warfare with the mightiest empire in the world. Joseph Warren may have only lived to have been 34, but he left an incredible legacy, one that we'll be talking more about in the next podcast. While Joseph Warren lived to be only 34, what I find interesting is that other um, signers to the Constitution, well, not, not the Constitution, but to the Declaration of Independence, lived longer lives. John Hancock lived to be 56. While that may not be considered old, that was old age for his day and time. Samuel Adams lived to be 81. 
Paul Revere was 83. So, many of us now have to wonder the following. How did all these other signers get to be so fortunate to have lived longer lives, whereas Joseph Warren only lived to be 34? You know, in other words, we could ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? I've often asked my dad that question. And he often will say to me, you know, son, I wish I had the answer to that question. Unfortunately, I don't know, but it's an unfortunate one. I do know that a Sunday school teacher of mine um, not long ago, or rather this um, the Sunday school class that my wife and I are a part of, one of the teachers did say that the reason why sometimes bad things will happen to good people, even if it's unintentional, if it's in the case of medical conditions, the good Lord above doesn't not is looking after that individual, but he is seeing to it that that individual does not have to endure any more suffering, physical suffering, than compared to what they're already having to go through. In other words, the good Lord is making sure that this that whoever out there is suffering will not see any further decline in the quality of their life. Joseph Warren had so much more left to live for. But when you consider how many lives he saved that day at Bunker Hill by being the last to leave, perhaps the good Lord above was looking after him and saying that, hey, even if you do meet a tragic death, at least you will know that you died for a hero's cause and that you didn't die, that you didn't die being a coward. Because Joseph Warren's father said those same words. He basically said, I'd rather have a son of mine be dead than be a coward. In other words, a son who um, accomplished a lot in all areas of life and yet wasn't afraid to uh, put his life on the line rather, instead of being the opposite who sat back and squandered all of his talents and didn't do anything to show for it. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. And the transition of power, even though Joseph Warren is gone, George Washington knows what he's going up against. It's not going to be easy. And Washington himself is going to have some very, very trying times all throughout what is left of the American Revolutionary War. But if Washington, one thing Washington himself can find comfort in is knowing that a leader before him has already set the tone and has helped um, galvanize men who are not afraid to fight the mightiest empire in the world, men who, who have had proven experience from fighting wars in the past. Yes, men who may not have the best clothing, but know how to fire a rifle, they know how to prepare for drill instructions, men who, who have what it takes. But Washington will have to have a lot more because what, he, what he'll see in Boston is one thing, but when he will go to New York, it's going to be a whole other story.
How so? Because the British force will be even bigger than it was in Boston. Well, thank you for listening tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care, and God bless.